1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and to last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Let me just pray for Mike as he comes up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and the joy of meeting together to share your word. Thank you for the preparation that Mike's done, and pray that you will fill him with your spirit and speak to each one of us this morning. May our hearts be open to hear what you have to say to us and willing to receive your word. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're doing a series called Grace in the City. Okay, now a few years ago, my wife and I were woken up in the middle of the night by a strange sound. It sounded like barking, a bit like a seal, but it was actually one of the children. It was our son, Ted, who at that time was three years old, and he had a, a something called croup, which is a respiratory problem. Now, if you've ever heard croup, and some of you parents probably have, you will know that it is no laughing matter. Without warning, the child's airways close up so that they can hardly breathe, and it's very labored, and they make this terrible barking sound like a seal. It's actually very frightening. Now, we had many plans for the next day. We had plans to work, plans to spend time with people, plans to take the kids to football, plans for housework, and at two o'clock in the morning, all the plans were dropped. Because when a child stops breathing on Thursday night, you drop everything and rush him to A&E. Because breathing is of first importance. Now in the Christian faith, there are many interesting topics for discussion and debate. Some things, though, are of first importance. Some things are crucial. And the core belief at the heart of the Christian faith is something called the gospel. Gospel is a word that just means a news report, great good news. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please open your Bible again if you've closed it there, page 1156. 1 Corinthians 15, a major letter of the New Testament. Paul writes there in verse 3, what I received, he's got this from others, he's received something, I've passed it on to you as of first importance. The good news is of first importance. In other words, the gospel is the main thing. Now, we're starting this, this term with a series of sermons called Grace in the City. It's a series about our central vision and our key values as a church. We're asking, what does this church actually stand for? What is Grace Church all about? What makes it tick? What's our heartbeat? What kind of church do we want to be? 
What are our aspirations? What things should we emphasize a lot? What things actually should we just hold with an open hand and agree to disagree on? Now, it's very important to ask this and to know this if you're new, and many of you are here today, and you're deciding whether you might make this church your spiritual home. You need to know what we stand for. It's also important to know this if you've been here a while. Because you need a refresher and a reminder that we hold each other to these core values. And it's also important to know what Grace Church being in the city means. If you're a leader, there are many, many different kinds of leaders in our church because you really are the guardians and the champions of these values and vision. So the aim of this series is to ask, what does it mean to be the people of grace in this city? What effect does the grace of God have on us? What kind of people does it make us into? And I want to try and inspire us to live wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ in this city, in our generation. Now, Dave, could you bring up the next slide? Because I've actually, just as a kind of pull-back helicopter view, here are the six sermons, the six talks on these vision and values. You can bring them all up, and you'll see that these six priority areas we want to bring before you and, and preach them through them from the Bible. So the first one is worship. We did that last week. The second one today is the gospel. The third one is community. The fourth is mission. The fifth is justice. And the sixth is the city itself. Now, those of you who've been around a while will recognize the middle three because we talk about them a lot, not least because they have the same letters as our church, G, C, and M. How convenient. But also the gospel, the community, and mission uh, are in a framework, which is uh, an ultimate aim of worshiping God and a, uh, an outflow, outflowing uh, consequential kind of effect of being a people who seek justice and who love our city. Now, Dave, if you bring up the next slide, I ought to have the clicker here. These values can be summed up in a simple diagram, which I stole from a man called Bruce Wesley. Here it is. Thank you for that. And you see here that right at the center of everything is the gospel, the good news. And it leads to people being worshippers and worshipping God. And it also has this kind of um, impact outwards at the horizontal level. The gospel drives us and draws us into community and it propels and mobilizes us out into mission all the while our hearts and our whole being being drawn up into greater love and worship of the living God the vertical axis and the gospel this great good news is the thing right at the center of it all worship we thought about this last week everybody worships something the worship is the thing that you serve with your life it's the thing you really love above everything else it's the thing that gets the praise of your lips. And we thought about how the thing that you ultimately love actually shapes the kind of person that you are. Jesus said that, he, that the Father, God the Father, seeks true worshippers. And that, that he himself, Jesus, had come in order that grace and truth might come so that people could become true worshippers. And that this Holy Spirit is sent out into the world through the church to pe draw people into a worship relationship with God. So the only way to become a true worshiper is, to, is through the gospel. Central thing. It's the engine that drives everything else. That's why we like to say that we're a gospel-centered church rather than just calling ourselves an independent church. A gospel-centered church. Three points today about the gospel. Um, Firstly, the centrality of the gospel. I'm getting so stereotyped now as a person who has 
three points with the same letter. I'm going to have to change. The centrality of the gospel, the content of the gospel, and the consequences of it. The centrality, the content, and the consequences. Look with me again at uh, chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, says Paul, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. After 14 detailed chapters dealing with all sorts of issues in the church at Corinth, which is in Greece, all sorts of issues. He's, he's answered to a letter that they'd written. He's answering some reports that he'd heard. He's observing things about them, their gifts, their abilities, but also how sinful they'd become. After all of that, he's kind of finally come to it, and he says, now listen, I'm finally getting down to the real thing I want to say to you, which is this. Remember the gospel that I preached to you, that you received, and on which you took your stand. Remember it. I want to remind you of it, because this is the place on which we stand. Because, it's so important, because... It's how we are saved. Look at verse 2. By this gospel you are saved. Now, you might be thinking, if you're not a Christian and you're just here exploring the faith, you might be thinking, well, I, I didn't really know that I needed saving. Thank you very much. But the biblical view of human beings is that we are lost and we need God to find us. We're slaves to our passions and pleasures and they will never satisfy us, so we need freedom from them. We were made for God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And the Bible says we are sinners, which means we fall short of the mark that God sets for humanity. It means that we're rebels who break God's perfect law. We're like children who take what we can greedily from God, but don't give him the love and loyalty that he deserves. And therefore, according to the Bible, our biggest problem is that God is angry with us. And we are under his judgment. His righteous, holy, just judgment and wrath rests upon us. So we need to be saved. To be rescued. Healed. Forgiven. Because we're lost. Because we're enslaved. Because we have incurred God's anger. And Paul says... There's only one way to be saved, and it's through this message, this news report, this gospel. This gospel is the only way to be saved. We are without hope and without God in the world until we hear this message. And it comes to us in power and clarity, and God stirs us up to respond to it, and then he changes us. Now, this gospel is the only way to be saved, but it is very effective. By God's mercy, anyone, anyone of any culture... Man, woman, or child can be saved simply by trusting in Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. It's not about what you have to do. It's about believing that he's already done it for you and resting in that and not in your own efforts. But faith in Jesus is not just a kind of mental assent to some data. It means the whole of you comes in. 
Everything about you now belongs to Jesus, trusts in Jesus, follows Jesus. So the gospel also entails a whole new way of life based on trusting and resting in Jesus. Not, not doing, making our own efforts, but resting in him. And Paul uses a very small word, significant word here uh, in verse 2. He says, if you're saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. So you can believe in vain. Not deeply, not truly, not sincerely, just flippantly. You've got to hold fast to the word, he says, or you'll be believed to no purpose. So let me ask those of you here who have heard the gospel and you have responded to it at some point and you have believed it, are you still holding it firmly? Is it still the thing of first importance to you? Or as time has gone by, have you started to live as if something else is of first importance? A romantic relationship that person who's got the face that you've always wanted to look into, those beautiful eyes, that person has started to take first place, be above Jesus Christ. Do you now live as though your job is of first importance? Your boss wants you to live like that. Probably your company wants you to live like that. But Jesus says, no, no, I'm, I'm of first importance. Do you now live, are you starting to live as if money is of first importance? You students... You're probably not going to live like that. You're just trying to get by. But you know, once the first few paychecks come in, life changes. And as you, some of you are now going up the career ladder, you find that you can earn more money now than you ever thought you would ever have. It can start to, to, to grip you and cap, capture your heart. What about children? Children, our culture says they're of first importance. Put them at the center of everything. They're not. In fact, they'll only thrive when Jesus is the person of first importance and the children orbit around that sun. What about your reputation? Is that now the thing of first importance? According to Paul, the gospel is the one really crucial thing. It's the main thing. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, the main thing. And it's the only way we can be saved, here and now and in the future. So we have to grip and hold on to this gospel that we received. And Paul helps us um, to do that by reminding us, just like the Corinthians, of the content, the content of the message. Have a look with me at verses 3 to 8 and just see who this is all about. Verses 3 to 8. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. What is this gospel all about? Who is it all about? Jesus! That's right! That's the Gospel 101, the Gospel GCSE. You've just got a star. It's, it's, it's all about Jesus. And Paul summarizes the content of this message with four verbs. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, and Jesus appeared or was seen. Died, buried, raised, appeared. I want to just look at these four verbs in two pairs. First of all, Christ died and was 
buried. He died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried. Now a very old prophecy, maybe seven or eight hundred years before Jesus uh, walked this earth, written by a great prophet called Isaiah. And for our American friends present, that's Isaiah, just in case you're having trouble with it. Uh, Isaiah describes a person who's known as the suffering servant. If you want to turn with me to it in Isaiah chapter 53, we'll read what he says about this mysterious Suffering servant, Isaiah 53, page 741. Isaiah gives this breathtaking description, but it's, it's actually a mystery. Who is this suffering servant? Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is this person? Verse 12. Look at the end of verse 12. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's a remarkable piece of writing. But for 800 years, nobody knew who it was about. Then Jesus was born. He lived until his early 30s. He was put to death on a cross. He rose from the dead. The penny dropped. He's the suffering servant. Jesus. Jesus is the one who bore the sins of many, who made intercession for the transgressors. So the cross of Jesus Christ is central to world history and to your history if you'll lean on it. Now, a lot of people find this very hard to relate to. Perhaps you're one of them. Why would anyone need to die for my sins? It seems bizarre. The Bible explains that we are all accountable to God for everything we do, for our lives. Everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, we will answer for it. And the way we have lived, you and I, has built up a debt that we cannot repay. Every lie... Every hurtful comment, every lustful glance, every moment of envy, every word of gossip, every selfish act. It's a mountain of debt that we can't pay back. Let me just try and illustrate this in, in money terms. Imagine that you lent me your car, you foolish person. And I drove it into a lamppost. In fact, one of my very first lessons in learning to drive, I drove my parents' car into the front wall of the house. Bless you. The repair bill for your car comes to £2,000. Now, you're sitting there with the bill, and you're thinking, there are three ways of dealing with this. 
Uh, I could get Mike to pay me £2,000, or we could take pity, he's a reasonable guy, you know, he's got five children, and we could split the bill. Or you could forgive the debt and not charge me anything. Let me off, go scot-free. But here's the thing, the debt doesn't just disappear, does it? Somebody has to pay the 2000 So the forgiveness option is very costly to you. What it means is instead of getting me to pay the debt, you paid it for me. Now that's just a car, and at the end of the day it's only money. But what about debt in relationship terms? What about when somebody really hurts you, and they they, they now have a debt, and you want to pay them back? Back to our illustration, what if I borrowed your car to take some children to a party? And when I was at the party with them, I decided to have a few beers and I drank too much, but I decided to risk it and I drove home anyway with the children and I was over the limit when I crashed the car. So it wasn't just the car that got damaged, it was the children. What if one of the children died? Now that is now way beyond economics and you can't just write that off. It's a debt that is beyond my ability to repay. I would need to be forgiven by the parents, by the family. They would have to choose to let that go, their rightful anger. That would be costly forgiveness from them, wouldn't it? Now, the Bible says that the ultimate parent is God. And our sins, although they're directed to other people, are actually ultimately directed at the ultimate parent, God. He's the one that needs to forgive, and actually he's the only one who can. And so the amazing A startling and and radical and fresh news of this gospel is that God says, here's how I'm going to forgive you. Jesus, my only darling begotten son, willingly pays your penalty with his life as a substitute for you. A sin bearer who takes it away and with his life makes peace between you and God. Now that is the most costly form of forgiveness. And only God can do it. And that's why Christianity can never, ever, ever be thought of as just doing your best. Some people think that the Christian message is basically, well, just do your best and try and live a good life. Just be a decent person. God will be pleased enough with that. You know, you're not too bad. God will add up the great Excel spreadsheet in the sky. And on that day, he'll find that the good stuff you did outweighs the bad. You said your prayers, you gave some money to charity, you tried to be nice, you paid your taxes. It's not enough. It never could be. If it could, Jesus would never have had to die. But he had to pay that price on the cross because there was nothing else for it. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. There's no other way. And in fact now, saying that you do your best is offensive. It is an offense to the living God and it is is an offense to Jesus Christ to say that you will do your best. How dare you? Christ died, he says, according to the scriptures. 
He then says, Christ was buried. He was buried. Now, why point this out? It reinforces that Jesus really did die. This isn't just a spiritual sort of truth, sort of an allegory, you know, concept of death and what that might mean. No, this is actually physically reality. Jesus had a body and he died. It's a fact of history. There was a tomb in Palestine. One Friday night, a corpse was laid in it, a dead body. That corpse was stone-cold dead. He bore the marks of crucifixion in his feet and hands and a massive gaping wound in the side where they stabbed him with a spear to make sure he was really dead. He was a carpenter from the northern town of Nazareth. I like to think he had carpenter's hands, you know, strong, rough kind of hands, only now they're pierced with nails. He's dead. And his name was Yeshua, or Jesus. Christ was dead and buried. But on to our second pair of verbs. He was raised and appeared. He was raised and appeared. Verse 4, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared. And then he's got this whole list of people. On Friday night, the corpse lay in the tomb, embalmed, wrapped in burial cloths, spices, and preserved the body and try and stop it from smelling too bad. On Sunday morning, the cloths were there and the body was gone. The cloths were neatly laid out there. The body was gone. He was alive. He was raised. Jesus Christ literally, physically rose from the dead. And this extraordinary claim that Jesus literally and physically rose from the dead is supported by this final of the four verbs, he appeared. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, so that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 at the same time. Most of them are still alive. And then he lists these others that he appeared to, James, all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me too. I saw him. Now, why does he go to such lengths to name all of these people? It maybe seems a bit over the top. Because Paul is naming witnesses. The idea that Jesus literally rose from the dead was just as unbelievable in the ancient world as it is to us today. And if I'm going to believe a claim like that, I need plenty of testimony, don't you? I need, plenty of, I need eyewitness testimony and lots of it. I need eyewitness testimony from people who really knew Jesus very, very closely and could recognize him, his closest friends and, and family and associates. I need eyewitness testimony from a really wide range of people, not just a small group of religious nuts. I need eyewitness testimony at different times and places so that it wasn't just one time that could have been some sort of mass hallucination. I need bulletproof testimony that people believe in so much that they would die for it. Can we have that kind of testimony? All of it is here. All of that is here. That's why he lists it. And notice how he says in verse 6, more than 500 people saw Jesus at one point and most of them are still alive. In other words, some of them had died, that's what they mean by fallen asleep, but when the letter was written, 1 Corinthians, written sometime in the middle of the first century, the 50s, not the 1950s, when it was written, you could still meet hundreds of people who had actually seen Jesus alive after he died. Hundreds of people would confirm the story, and those people formed the backbone of the early church. Little churches scattered around Jerusalem and Israel and then further afield. 
these, when this letter was read out in the churches, you could actually, there would be people in the room who'd be nodding and saying, yeah, I know, I was there. It's true, I saw him with my own eyes. Paul says, you want proof? Here it is. I rest my case. It's watertight. I have to acknowledge this claim. Jesus physically rose from the dead. What do you think of that? Some people think that Christian faith lacks intellectual credibility. They think it's okay for children and for the emotionally needy, but that it lacks substance. It's not credible. It's based on myths and fables. Now, one problem with that view is that some of the most brilliant minds who have ever lived and some of the most brilliant minds alive today are Christians. But there are plenty of clever atheists as well, so we probably can't resolve the issue just by counting IQ points. Another way of addressing credibility is look at the way these early Christians present their case. They make the claim about the resurrection by compiling a list of eyewitnesses. This is not the way that fables and myths are written. It's a serious claim. And it was so serious that some of these ones who were listed were prepared to die for it uh, at the hands of the Roman Empire. They were told to say that Caesar is Lord, but they knew otherwise. They knew that Jesus Christ had risen. They knew that Jesus, therefore, was Lord, and there could be no other. So they refused the oath, and some went to their deaths in his name. Now, if they didn't really, 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 really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, how do you explain that? Four verbs that summarize the content of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. Paul has shown us the centrality of the gospel. He's, he's reminded us of the content of it. And now he closes with the consequences. The consequences, because the final person, the final witness on the list, is Paul himself. It's quite surprising. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, he was quite the opposite. He was a religious terrorist. He hounded Christians to their death. He was responsible for persecution victimization, house arrests, imprisonment, and even some deaths. But then the risen Lord Jesus appeared one more time to Paul and changed him forever, even changed his name. He was called Saul. The gospel's most vicious opponent became the gospel's most vigorous proponent. And Paul describes himself as like a, a pregnancy that kind of came at the wrong time, a baby born at the wrong time. Verse 8, he says, Last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Didn't deserve to be on the list. Verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He looks back on his previous life with shame. He thinks, who was I? God doesn't owe me anything. And yet, God showed this grace. What does it mean? Radical mercy. Undeserved favor. Generous love to those who don't deserve it. A shocking kind of forgiveness. In this case, grace to a terrorist. A lot of people can't handle the idea of grace. In fact, by nature, none of us can. 
Some years ago, a man called Jonathan Aitken visited uh, Manchester. Pete, who spoke earlier on, brought him up. Pete runs a ministry to business in the city centre, and he got this uh, man to talk about his life experiences. Aitken was a cabinet minister in the Conservative government, and he was charged with perjury. He perjured himself under oath, and he perverted the course of justice as a minister in the government, and he was jailed for 18 months. He lost everything. He was made bankrupt. I think he'd lost his marriage. And he was in prison, down there with all the uh, criminals. And while he was in prison, he became a Christian. Now, I remember talking about this with a senior partner at the company I used to work in, a great woman, and she scoffed. Oh, Aitken's become a Christian. What a joke. You just say sorry and it's all okay. Yeah, that's the point of grace. You just say sorry and it's all okay. This is how it works. So it's not fair by the way we normally measure fairness. You don't pay your own way and pay it back. You never could. It doesn't come down to doing your best. It's all about being let off because Jesus Christ loved you and gave himself for you and paid your debt. What a wonderful message that is. Are there any words that are more beautiful than these gospel words? If you get that, you know what? It changes everything. If you really get it, it changes everything. I'll never forget a man speaking to a man some years ago who knew he had sinned. He had really messed up. He'd hurt some people who tried to love him. And then they tried to forgive him. <laughs> some of them are in this room. He was so conscious of his guilt. I never saw anybody who looked so burdened. And he knew the gospel. He understood enough of it. But you know, he couldn't accept it. And he said these words, and I'll never forget them. He said, I'd rather take a beating than be forgiven. I'd rather take a beating. I can take that. I can't take forgiveness. I find it easier to be punished. I can understand that. But to be freely forgiven, I can't handle it. And he walked away from our church and he walked away from Jesus Christ. He was honest and it was tragic. He was basically saying, I've got to pay my own way. I did it my way. But if you paid your own way, if you ever could, Jesus would not have had to die. The gospel offers you grace. Sheer, radical, undeserved grace. That's why it is the thing of first importance, friends. The gospel of the grace of God. And you know what the consequences are of accepting that grace? For Paul was that he worked harder than all the rest of them. Just changed him into this dynamo. Look at it, verse 9. I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I worked harder than all of them, he says. What did he do? In the second letter to the Corinthians, he, he, he has this list. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. They reckoned 40 lashes would kill someone, so they gave him 39 with a, a, a lash that had bits of metal and stone and 
things in it to, to flay the back of the person. They would whip them and pull it back. Paul was, was given the 39 lashes five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And he doesn't mean he was smoking wacky-backy. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of anxiety for churches. So he was a pastor as well. Why did he work so hard? Because he believed he'd been forgiven so much. And when you've been forgiven a lot, you love a lot, don't you? When you've been forgiven a lot, you love a lot. When your mountain of debt has been repaid, you will work for free. Paul really gets it. He doesn't just believe that the gospel is the thing of first importance. He feels that it's the thing of first importance. He lives as if the gospel is the thing of first importance. So, Grace Church, we're thinking about our vision and values. And I've said that right at the center of it all is this engine, the gospel. How can we, as people, as individuals, going back to your workplace or your home or your school or your university tomorrow, how can we keep this gospel as a thing of first importance? Three quick thoughts as we close. One, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Two, we've got to keep sharp on the main thing. And three, we've got to keep loving by the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. You know, you can lose the gospel without actually denying it. You just stop majoring on it. This happens again and again in church history. If you study the history of the church, the 20th century, previous centuries, it's happened over and over again. People say, yes, yes, we do believe in the cross still, but it's not central anymore. Those of you at university, you may know the Christian Union, the history of the Christian Union movement in this country rests on how central the cross is. Back in the early part of the 20th century, trends of thought and theology that had swept through the universities uh, influenced a group called the SCM, the Student Christian Mission, to say that the cross was no longer central to the message of Christianity, although they still said they believed in it. And another group, the InterVarsity Fellowship, said, no, no, the cross is central. The gospel is the thing of first importance. And these two groups split over it. And the Christian union movement is the one that held the gospel to the thing of first importance. And the other one withered and died. How do we uh, keep the main thing the main thing? Well, some things we can do in our church. We will not major on minor things, secondary or tertiary issues. So sometimes people come in and they're trying to figure out what kind of church is this? It doesn't seem to fit any of the categories that you have. Uh, what about speaking in tongues? We don't major on it. Does that mean we don't believe in it? It has divided many Christians and many churches. Some churches have split over whether Christians should speak in tongues or not. But we will not let it divide us because we are a gospel-centered church. So how do we deal with that? With liberty and respect. If you are a... a tongue-speaking, on-fire, Pentecostal, charismatic, God bless you, keep the gospel at the center. If you are a cessationist, 
God bless you, keep the gospel at the center, but we can all be in the same church if we have the gospel at the center. That's an open hand issue, whether you speak in tongues or not. What's closed hand is if you say that you have to speak in tongues to be a Christian, because suddenly we're taken away from the gospel there. One movement in the 20th century insisted on what they call initial evidence, that in other words, to be a Christian, you have to speak in tongues. And if you haven't done it yet, then we've jolly well got to try and help you to do it. Suddenly we've taken away from the purity of the gospel with that. No, no, that's a closed hand. We won't insist on it, but we'll give liberty and respect. What about um, other things that divide churches? Baptism, pedo-baptism or credo-baptism? Are you a pedo or a credo? It's an unfair way of putting the question, isn't it? Pedo-baptists believe that, and very passionately some of them, we ought to baptize children, infants, in order to bring them into the covenant community and the family of God and show them that God's promises are for them and that the family unit comes in, not just individuals. Believers, Baptists or credo-baptists say, no, no, you know what? Baptism ought to be only for those who've, who've put their faith in Christ and profess faith in him and maybe have shown some credible evidence that it's true. What are we as a church? Do you know what? We have an open hand on that issue. We need liberty and respect to one another because it's not a gospel issue. We resolve to major on the gospel to keep the main thing the main thing and not let any of these other things split us or divide us into little party groups and take us off mission. Secondly, we've got to keep sharp on the main thing. One of the early church fathers was a man called Tertullian. The church fathers were early thinkers and theologians. Tertullian said, like the Lord Jesus, the gospel is always in danger of being crucified between two thieves. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Tertullian said, there's two thieves that always try and take the gospel away from you. One is legalism, believing that we have to add our own efforts and keeping God's law in order to be accepted. The other is licentiousness, the belief that, well, it doesn't really matter what you do because you've been forgiven anyway, you can live how you like. Both of those things take away from the purity of the gospel of Jesus. We have to keep sharp on the main thing. And the sharp end of this, I think, is our life groups, our small groups that meet in the week and uh, seek to help each other be disciples and eat together and pray together and Go on mission together. You know, you life group leaders, you have 10, 12, 15, 20 people under your, your care. You've got, we've got to keep each other sharp on the main thing. Is there evidence in your life group that people are relying on law? Are they becoming harsh and critical and resentful of others because they're not doing enough? It's legalism. It starts to steal away from the gospel. Or are there others who, who are living like Jesus hasn't really changed them? We've got, we've got to keep each other sharp on this main thing or it will be stolen from us. And thirdly and finally, we've got to keep loving by the main thing. Keep loving by the main thing. Paul says, by the grace of God, I worked harder than any of them. His phenomenal life of sacrifice and daring risk and laying himself down for Jesus was not driven by personal ambition nor by guilt or even duty. It was the grace of God. And the Bible indicates that the greater the sense of forgiveness received, the greater the love and commitment of the forgiven person towards the Lord who has rescued them. Paul's sense of infinite debt to God who had shown him such grace fueled his passion to spread the fame and glory 
of that gracious God. We have to keep this at the center personally and as a church corporately. And that means at the center of our motivations. Or we will get fatigued and weary and discouraged and want to give up. Or we will get angry and hard and resentful and critical and fossilized. Or we will get flabby, complacent and lazy. The gospel will keep us from those things. Think about the call of our city. What a great place Manchester is. Thriving and growing and changing all the time. So diverse, so vibrant. You guys who serve the gospel on Friday night by going and doing conversation cafe with uh, non-English speakers at the Alexandria Library. And now the Thursday night class as well. Why do you do it? You who serve the community by clearing up parks, running toddler groups, supporting the food bank. You who serve international students and academics through the iCafe and the IBG group to share this precious word. You who serve the community of Fallowfield through the place at Platt Lane and running a choir for the community. You who have determined to honour Jesus Christ by loving Moss Side or loving Old Moat or loving Fallowfield or loving Rusholm. You who serve our church family with your time and your energy and your gifts and your home, looking after children, cooking meals, showing hospitality, running youth work, getting up on Sunday morning to set up this school, playing instruments, leading meetings, you life group leaders, giving your time and your energy. Why do you do it? It has to be the gospel. There's nothing else that can motivate us to do it willingly and warmly and lovingly over time. When all our instincts, let's be honest, are to just ease up and serve ourselves. You'd rather have Friday night at home, wouldn't you? But the gospel compels you to something different. Uh, great American pastor and preacher Tim Keller told the story, you've probably heard it before, about a Wall Street executive, a high-powered woman, businesswoman, who heard the gospel, understood it, and then wavered and said, um, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if this is true, because if this is true, there is no limit to what Jesus could ask of me. If this is true, there's no limit to what Jesus could ask of me. Let's keep the thing of first importance as a thing of first importance. Remember the centrality of the gospel. Remember the content of the gospel. Jesus Christ and live out the consequences of the gospel day by day. God bless you. Let's pray, shall we? Whether then it is I or they, Paul says, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Heavenly Father, what wonderful words uh, you have given to us, uh, this good news. That though we were lost and far away and disobedient and wicked, you have set your heart of love on us and sent your son for us. And now we heard the news. We received it. And many of us here have taken our stand on it. Help us now to hold firmly to the word preached to us and not to believe in vain. Amen.